Hello out there on the internet, I am Matthew Galt and this is Cyber. I've got a special presentation for today's episode. It's all about nuclear war and famine. Here is me, from a little bit earlier in the week, explaining just what you're about to listen to. Alright, hello everyone, thank you for joining us on this, uh, this Twitch stream slash Twitter space. I'm Matthew Galt, I'm a journalist at Motherboard who covers nuclear issues among other things. So there's this new study in Nature Food this month that's generating a lot of headlines. It's built on the foundation of decades of research. It's about climate change and the global famine that would follow even a limited nuclear exchange. The models are terrifying. They are a terrifying warning. A limited war between Pakistan and India that uses just 3% of the world's nuclear weapons could kill a third of the Earth's population. Today we're going to talk about this study, its implications, and what we can do to avoid it. And here with me to have that discussion is one of the authors behind the study, Rutgers University's climatologist, Alan Roebuck. Roebuck will lay out what he and his colleagues found in just a moment to help us understand what actions we should take. Is also with us Dr. Ruth Mitchell from the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War and Alicia Sanders-Zachary from the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. Thank you all three so much for joining us this morning, bright and early to talk about nukes. Happy to be here. All right, Alan. Can Great you, to be here. Uh, Alan, can you lay out what's in the study um, and why it's important? We've been studying the impacts of nuclear war for quite a while. A nuclear war would target cities and industrial areas, which would burn. The smoke would go up into the atmosphere and stay for years, blocking out the sunlight, making it cold and dark at the Earth's surface. If there was enough smoke, it would be nuclear winter. Temperatures would be below freezing even in the summertime. So that's temperature, but we wanted to actually calculate how it would affect our food supply. So we took our latest simulations of what, based on scenarios of war between India and Pakistan, two new nuclear nations, and also the U.S. and Russia, which still have more than 90% of the nuclear arsenals. And we calculated in each country, how the agriculture would be affected for the major grains, corn, wheat, rice, and soybeans, how it would affect grass, which is used for pasture, and then how fisheries would be affected. And for each country, we calculated what would happen to the food supply. We assumed that international trade between countries would stop, countries would hoard their food, and there's only about a 60-day supply of food in storage, so we looked at year two after all of that was gone and calculated how much food there would be for people in different countries. And we found that a war between India and Pakistan could subject uh, more than 2 billion people to starvation by famine. A war between the U.S. and Russia could uh, affect could kill more than 5 billion people. And this was based on the latest data we had from the Food and Agriculture Organization from 2010, and the total population of the world was 6.7 billion. So this is almost all the people in the world. And, of course, the conclusion is that uh, nuclear weapons can't be used because they would affect everybody in the world, not just the people that would suffer the horrific consequences of the direct attacks that we already know about. More than 10 times as many people would die elsewhere. Alan, when we I talked with you a little bit off uh, mic earlier last week, and you were giving me some of kind of your background, where you come from, uh, and how it, like climate change is related to nuclear weapons. Can you talk about that a little bit and the volcanic ash of it all? I'm a meteorologist, and when I was doing my PhD work, I started working on climate change. That was 50 years ago, and. Uh, I looked at what was causing climate change at the past 100 years, and the most important natural cause of uh, climate change was volcanic eruptions, which is not the ash. The ash is the rock particles that fall out quickly, but sulfur dioxide gas is put up into the atmosphere and creates a thin cloud of sulfuric acid droplets. The last big eruption was the Mount Pinatubo eruption in 1991 in the Philippines, but 
1815, the Tambora volcano in Indonesia put up such a cloud that it caused global cooling and it caused famine in different parts of the world. The sulfuric acid droplets fall out after a year or two, but black soot from fires would be heated by the sun lofted high in the stratosphere. The stratosphere is a layer above where we live that doesn't have any rain to wash out the particles, and it would last for years. Uh, Forty years ago, I went to a conference and learned about the possible impacts of nuclear war on climate and started using the same models I'd used to study volcanic eruptions to calculate how the soot would change. Back then, Computers were much smaller. The iPhone in my hand that I'm using right now is a much faster supercomputer than any we had available back then. But nowadays, we can calculate in much more detail what would happen in different parts of the world over a long period of time. And so we've used these modern tools to do the analysis. And can you also walk us through, I know we've talked a lot about India and Pakistan and and highlighted a little bit of Russia uh, in America. Can you tell us more about the specific scenarios that you kind of game out in the study? There are about 13,000 nuclear weapons in the world now. Uh, the U.S. and Russia have more than 90 of the, 90% of them. So we said, what would happen if there's a war between the U.S. and Russia? And we calculate how much smoke would get up into the stratosphere and last for years. It would be a couple percent of the total amount of material to burn. There are seven other nuclear nations now, and they each only have a, f- a couple hundred nuclear weapons. So what would happen if India and Pakistan had a nuclear war was a issue that we started studying about 15 years ago because starting then, before then, even up till today, there are skirmishes in Kashmir, and they've even had small wars, and they're both nuclear nations. We saw what would happen if they had a nuclear war. And so back then, each had 100 nuclear weapons, and we assumed they would be very small ones, and each would use half of them. But now, they're having us their own little arms race, and they have more weapons, and they're more explosive. The potential targets are larger. And so we outlined a series of scenarios of how such a nuclear war might be fought. So you can get between 5 and 50 million tons of smoke in the atmosphere, and between the U.S. and Russia, 150 million tons. But those are just scenarios, possible ways that a nuclear war might be fought. There's other nuclear nations, and so it doesn't really matter who has the war. If there was a war with China and India, if Israel got involved, it just matters how much smoke there is, because the smoke stays so long that it'll be blown around the world and last for years. And so these are just examples. We're not implying that these are the countries that would fight a nuclear war, and hopefully uh, they would never fight a nuclear war. Dr. Mitchell? Uh, can you tell me a little bit about the work of the IPPNW, kind of what, what they stand for and what they're about? Um, one of the really striking things I read about this study last week came from y'all. That's actually the, the pull quote about a third of the population being affected by this is something from that IPPNW report. Can you talk about it? Yes. Thank you so much. It's a real honor to be here with you. And, uh, and to be able to have this conversation, which I think is probably one of the most important discussions we can have. Um, it's a particular honor to be um, in a conversation with Alan Robock. I've been um, reading your work, Alan, and um, studying it uh, for many years. When I was in my last year of medical school, 2007, um, your important paper with uh, Brian Toon came out, and I've been quoting it ever since, about a limited regional nuclear war. And so the role of IPPNW, which is the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War, is to draw attention and bring a light to the ongoing health problems caused by the very existence of nuclear weapons and the certain annihilation that would occur if they were used. And we draw our strength from the witnesses and the stories of nuclear survivors, of the victims of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and of nuclear testing that's happened around the world since then, disproportionately affecting Indigenous communities. And so we really try to draw our insights and our advocacy from these stories from the bedside, from these survivor narratives, and understand what has happened to people when nuclear weapons have been used, what has happened to their bodies, what's happened to their land, um, what diseases have they had to deal with, and how has it affected future generations. 
And so for us, it's really important to be able to engage with and interact with this uh, new, um, really brilliant paper that, that has just come out and to be able to um, add this to our data and our evidence base for developing the healthiest of healthy public policy, which is banning nuclear weapons and getting rid of them forever. So IPBNW has been around for more than 40 years now. I'm really lucky to be and really honored to be the chair of the board. Um, but there are hundreds and hundreds of doctors and have been thousands over the over the decades um, and medical students around the world who have been trying to reframe nuclear weapons as a public health issue. And I can't see anything better than this study to sharpen our focus, deepen our conviction, and get nuclear abolition over the line. Can you tell me a little bit about some of those, uh, what did you call them, bedside interviews? Like what, can you, can you really make explicit what it is, what life is like for people who live in nuclear testing, uh, places where nuclear tests have been done, people who live in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, like what life is like even generations later? Certainly. So, um, uh, I live and work in Australia, um, on unceded sovereign Aboriginal land. Um, and we have, uh, made a lot of effort here in Australia um, through the, the Medical Association uh, for the Prevention of War, which is the, uh, the local Australian affiliate of IPPNW, and also through ICANN Australia, to really um, centre the voices of Aboriginal survivors of, of the nuclear weapons tests that occurred in the South Australian desert in particular. And so I think about Yami Lester, who is a, an Aboriginal man who unfortunately has passed away, um, and of his, his descendants, his daughters, um, who, who kept uh, his work going, both during his lifetime and after, his, after he passed. And he was a man who became progressively uh, blind after his exposures to, to nuclear testing. And um, when you look at the communities uh, that he grew up in in that, at that area, you see a far higher rate of both solid, um, solid organ and also blood cancers than you would find in um, you know, a comparable community nearby that wouldn't have had those those radioactive exposures. But you also see a loss and a destruction of a lot of the traditional knowledge space and the the carriage of culture, which which inhabits so much the land, the water and the air. And so if a if, for example, a traditional um, location that has been a sacred place for either um, sacred men's business or sacred women's business, um, a place where uh, people come of age um, or go through important rituals, then that is lost because it's now a contaminated place that no one can go. So the, the loss of the integrity of the human experience goes beyond the, the physical injury to the body, beyond mutations that are inherited by future generations. There's a loss of culture um, and there's a disconnection with the land because the land is poisoned, um, which means traditional bush foods can't be used and the water can't be used. So it's profound, it's comprehensive, and it gives us a microcosm of what will happen if nuclear weapons are used more uh, broadly. Yeah, I always think of, in my own backyard, the Pacific Proving Grounds, the Marshall Islands. You know, from 1946 to 1958, the United States does something like 67 nuclear tests in the Marshall Islands. And still to this day, uh, the residents there are experienced horrifying health conditions, um, an above average level of birth defects and many parts of their islands that they just can't simply inhabit anymore. Um, and I think it's absolutely decades and, later, you know, this, right? Sorry, go ahead. And it's so, imp it's so important to look at this through the lens of understanding that this is, this is a sort of, this is a colonialism and it's a nuclear racism. You know, this is, uh, this is terrible behavior on every level, but it's a desecration of, of sovereign cultures and countries and, of, of pristine wilderness and of, um, you know, ecosystems where people are in harmony with, with the planet, um, that is, that is really just completely egregious. And, and yet so few people really know or appreciate any of it. Well, it seems like people are paying attention more, maybe it's just because I'm in the nuclear space, but it does seem like this study in particular really, uh, I've, I've seen it shared around. I'm seeing people that don't normally talk about nukes, talk about it. Uh, why do we think, and this is just an open question for the group, uh, Alicia, please feel free to answer as well. Why do we think that this study has penetrated in a way that other things haven't recently? 
I, mean, I can I can jump in. I'd be interested in, in of course, in uh, Dr. Robosk's take as well, given that he's been uh, writing about this for so many years um, and and raising the alarm. Um, but you know, I think speaking from from where I am here in in Geneva in Europe, um, there's certainly an increased awareness of the possibility of nuclear risk becoming a reality. And I think this is something we've been, you know, warning about for for years now. Um, similarly, I think to how doctors have been warning about the risks of a, a globally a global and, and deadly pandemic. Um, the risk has always been there, but I think it hasn't been real uh, for many people. And I think having, you know, perhaps an awareness of the possibility of uh, a nuclear exchange close to, you know, where people here in Europe, at least, uh, are living. Uh, makes it, you know, all the more uh, scary and, and attention grabbing. Um, and I think that's, you know, the value of, of these studies is that they bring this, you know, what I think people who, who work on nuclear weapons, uh, who promote this theory of nuclear deterrence, they like to really keep it as kind of an abstract idea. It's this academic theory of nuclear deterrence that supposedly keeps us safe. Uh, but when you actually look at the reality and the reality of risk uh, and the facts of what scientists are telling us, what doctors are telling us would happen if there were uh, a nuclear war, it's, it's become so obvious that, uh, you know, this is un- untenable and we have to eliminate nuclear weapons uh, immediately. And people are working on that. People like the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. Can you tell us a little bit about what ICANN does and kind of what their recent gains are uh, in, in the international community? Absolutely. Uh, so ICANN, it's a global coalition of uh, hundreds of partner organizations, including, of course, IPP and W, uh, working around the world to advance the Treaty Banning Nuclear Weapons, the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. And this is a new UN treaty that was adopted in 2017 uh, and is uh, gathering more countries that are signing on to it by the day. Uh, And it's the first international treaty to prohibit uh, all nuclear weapons activities uh, and actually also to provide some forms of assistance for victims of nuclear weapons use and testing and uh, to take steps to remediate contaminated environments. Uh, So it's a really powerful international tool uh, that just had its first kind of major global gathering of all the countries that have joined it in uh, in June in Vienna. Uh, and at that meeting, all countries uh, agreed to an action plan, a 50-point action plan for how they're going to take forward the treaty, uh, take forward nuclear disarmament and, and eliminating nuclear weapons. Um, so I think this is really a bright spot and a spot of hope amidst a very bleak international uh, environment. And you know, a real indication that global problems like nuclear winter really require global solutions. Uh, And that's what this international treaty is all about. Uh, It's about countries, even if they don't, you know, they don't have nuclear weapons, um, but they know they'd be impacted by a nuclear war, as as Dr. Robach's research shows. Um, So I think it's, you know, it's it's really an indication of, of why, international treaties and international laws are so important uh, to address problems like these that that really you know don't respect national borders uh, and and have really could have really catastrophic global consequences Alan can you talk about the international um, effects of nuclear weapons this is something that would really struck home in your study and in, in, a, in that talk that you and I had that this is not a problem that is limited to the nine nations that have nuclear weapons, right? Sure. Uh, first of all, I just am honored also to be talking with representatives from ICANN and IPPNW, both of which have won the Nobel Peace Prize. And I also wanted to point out that this work was mainly done by Lily Shaw, my colleague and former student. And it was funded by the Open Philanthropy Project. I just wanted to thank all those people. So, We all know the horrific direct effects of nuclear war, as we saw in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and most people are afraid of radioactivity or blast or fires, 
But the smoke would go up into the atmosphere, spread around the world, and affect the whole planet. And so uh, in the U.S., we think about a war on the other side of the world between India and Pakistan. That could affect us uh, terribly uh, and affect our food supply. So it's a global problem. And a lot of countries in the world have realized this and have become nuclear-free zones. There's no nuclear weapons in the Southern Hemisphere. And there are large areas in in Asia also. Kazakhstan was used as a testing ground by the Russians, and they're very anti-nuclear and one of of the first to uh, ratify the uh, ban treaty, the TPNW. So I gave talks at conferences on humanitarian impacts of nuclear war leading up to the ban treaty and talked about our previous work, and that helped, and there were more than 100 countries there, that helped them to have an argument to tell the nine nuclear nations, we're going to suffer if you use nuclear weapons, and so we want you to get rid of them. All right, cyber listeners, we're going to pause there for a break. We'll be right back after this. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. All right, cyber listeners, you're all in with me, Matthew. We are back to talking about nuclear war and the famine that would come afterwards. What are the, and maybe this is a question for Alicia and Dr. Mitchell, what are the mechanisms by which the international community can exert pressure on the nuclear nine? I think um, one of the exciting things that's already happening is because we have the treaty and it's now international law and it's coming to force. You know, nuclear weapons have always been immoral, but now they're illegal. And I think um, certainly this study adds a layer of, uh, you know, conviction to the understanding that having them and continuing to have them in any way, shape or form is untenable and not compatible with life on Earth, really, in any significant, sustainable, meaningful, fun and enjoyable way. And I think what we're starting to see in a new way certainly since the treaty came into force, but even from when it was negotiated at the UN, um, you know, in 2017, is the stigmatization of nuclear weapons at the international level. And this is having an effect on financial institutions. So whilst we all acknowledge that the, you know, nine countries that have got nukes at the moment are not very close to signing and ratifying the treaty to ban nuclear weapons or doing anything to their arsenals, the financial drivers of the industry are actually under pressure in a way that I don't think that they have ever been before. And, you know, one of the interesting things that came out when um, when ICANN won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2017 is a little bit of digging. It was discovered that the Nobel Foundation was at that point still invested in nuclear weapons companies. That got fixed pretty quickly once it came to light. But that prompted a lot of people to go digging and find out you know, what is their bank invested in? And there's been just some spectacular work by ICANN on this around the world to to discover the, um, you know, who, who's invested and what can we do to get people to divest. And I think that's been really powerful. I'm, I'm sure Alicia can speak to that more intelligently than me, but I think it's been a real significant cultural shift. And it does put pressure on those P9 because at the end of the day, the only people that profit from the ongoing existence of nuclear weapons is this industry and their cronies, and that needs to be undermined. Yeah, happy to speak to that as well, uh, although I think doc- Dr. Mitchell has spoken very intelligently about it. Um, but I, I do think it's, it's such an important question because even when we talk about, you know, there's this international treaty, it's really exciting. I think for a lot of people, it's like, well, great, what, what can I do to get my country to join an international treaty uh, or, you know, to get them to, to implement it? And that feels like a pretty big ask. Um, But what we've done is, you know, we have some really great uh, campaigns that people have been uh, promoting in in their countries around the world, um, where we've seen really cool results. And one of them is definitely divestment. Uh, And we have a, a dedicated website to this with lots of resources about how you can contact your bank, uh, and find out what, you know, 
what their investment policies are and, and how to get them to divest from um, nuclear weapons producing companies or, or your pension fund. Um, in addition to this, there are other initiatives that people have really been taking up that have been having an impact. Um, one, we call it the city's appeal. And it's where you can contact your um, you know, local city council or town council and get them to pass a resolution calling on your country to join the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. And we also have a website dedicated to this. And you can see all of the cities uh, and towns around the world who've adopted these resolutions. Uh, so it's a really powerful way to kind of build up support at the local level for action uh, at the federal level. Uh, there's also a parliamentary pledge where you can kind of target your specific elected representative um, and call on them to, to join ICANN's pledge uh, to work to get their country to join the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. Um, and then one fourth uh, track I'll mention is uh, our university's work. So, you know, ICANN has done some research, particularly looking at links at universities in the U.S. to the nuclear weapons complex, to, to nuclear weapons laboratories. Uh, and, you know, we have kind of more resources there where you can find out if your university is uh, linked to nuclear weapons production and, and call on them to, to change their behavior if you're a student or an alumni or, you know, connected to a university. So I think, I mean, that's a lot of, I think the power and, and strength of ICANN is that it's a coalition of um, people from all different uh, parts of, of society. You know, maybe they're, they're doctors like Dr. Mitchell, maybe they're members of faith institutions uh, or students. And there's really, everybody can get involved uh, in a different way. Uh, and we kind of try to provide the resources and inspiration from people who are already doing this work in other parts of the world uh, to help help you get involved. I just wanted to say that uh, my university, Rutgers University, is not on the list of universities that is in the nuclear weapons industry. I'm, I'm, I'm proud of that. And, uh, uh, you know, in the 1980s, the a Russian scientist and American scientist did a calculation of how climate would change after nuclear war, and both found that there would be nuclear winter. This was presented to the leaders, Reagan and Gorbachev, and that helped motivate them to end the nuclear arms race. But at the same time, there were massive demonstrations in democracies against nuclear weapons, and that helped also. Today, people have other concerns, and uh, nuclear weapons isn't really high up on their list. They're worried about COVID or their kids' education or their job, and so the price of gasoline or petrol, as some people say. Uh, and so uh, how do we get it higher up on their radar? And that, that's, that's the struggle. Uh, Putin's threat to use nuclear weapons in his attack on Ukraine has gotten people's attention, and that's one reason people are talking about it uh, more. But it's been 77 years since the last nuclear war, and most people think it'll never happen again because it hasn't happened. But the problem is if the weapons exist, they can be used, and they're, we've come very close a number of times, and so uh, we really have to get rid of them. This Matthew, uh, sorry, go ahead. Can I just say, you um, before you ask the question, like, why do you think this might be, you know, getting greater purchase than than um, some of the previous kind of like um, rounds of 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 data and and uh, modeling in this space? And I think thinking um, from my professional kind of space, I think that because we've we're you know still very much in the middle of a pandemic, although although lots of people are trying to pretend that it's over. Um, I think there's something about the experience of a global pandemic that has reminded people of their mortality and their vulnerability. And people are feeling, um, they're feeling differently about, about being immortal or invincible, um, than, than they previously were. I see, I see this in my patients, whether they're children or adults. Um, I see the kinds of worries people have about the future have changed. And I think people are fe feeling their, vulnerability on this planet in a different way. And I think that the prevalence of like, you know, supposedly once in a hundred years type of climate events has also helped people to realize how easily things can get out of kilter um, for us as, you know, humans on this thin crust. And, and so I think that there's some really interesting psychology going on there. And, and I think it, 
it does create an opportunity for people to grapple with some really significant existential problems. So I think that coming at this time, this paper is a real gift um, from, from, from Alan and his colleagues. And I'm really grateful for it because it, I think it's what we need to focus our work and to drive home this message that either we get rid of nuclear weapons or, or they will get rid of at least a third of us, probably two thirds of us at a conservative estimate. And that really, that really focuses my mind. All right. I've got some questions coming in from the audience. Oh, looks like they just rescinded. Uh, well, never mind. Um, I was going to ask then how, and kind of building off of what you just said, Dr. How do we start this conversation with people? Do we think um, food insecurity and famine is a good way to like start kind of teaching people about nuclear weapons again? How, like, especially with younger people that really just don't didn't grow up in the eighties. I kind of have no cultural memory of world war two. How do we start this? Oh, I, either I think to, we can, sorry, go ahead. I think we can start by saying, you know, um, like the way I, I, I start this is by saying, you know, here's a health issue that is currently, you know, under treated by, by healthy public policy. Here's something that we can do to make the world safer for the love, the people that we love. Um, and, and here's why it's a risk. And let's look at the, look at the picture together. Let's look at the evidence together. Let's look at this really fantastic, sophisticated, nuanced modeling together. And I like the, uh, very much the, you know, our IBPNW report on this, cause it breaks it down. You've already made reference to this idea that, you know, less than 3% of the world's nuclear weapons being used could lead to up to a third of the, the world starving to death. So just breaking things down into those kinds of bite-sized messages that people can start to digest and incorporating those into our campaign materials, into our messaging, into our public speaking, into the conversations we have one-on-one, but also in those discussions we have with decision makers. Uh, I think that's going to be the next wave of our work together. Yeah, another thing I liked about the I the the your study in particular, your kind of riff on the work in particular, is that I think there's a lot of nihilism in this space. When people kind of confront the issue of nuclear weapons, they think, "Oh, well, I'll die in the first blast, and then I won't have to worry about anything anymore." Um, but what these studies really make clear is that people survive a nuclear war and life after they detonate, especially in numbers that we're kind of talking about um, is, is not great. Can you talk about doctor uh, like what a reduced calorie intake looks like? Can we get that granular with this? Uh, look, I think it's a really good um, way of looking at it. And I think, you know, recently there have been a lot of issues with supply chain with food um, to various parts of the world. And so this is a, a, you know, starvation and and hunger and famine are a present danger for, for many, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of people in the world. Um, Food insecurity is already a, a a global challenge. And so we don't have to look too far to find examples of this. Um, You know, it, it's interesting to realize just how vulnerable all of our supply chains are, you know, when we don't have, you know, grains coming out of Ukraine, how upsetting that is, and then how many places that's affecting uh, prices and availability. And so I think of the people I have as patients who are very unwell, and I think about the challenges we have for an already sick person if they can't get enough calories in because, you know, their tummy's not absorbing well, or their whole, you know, GI tract is, is actually just not available for business, and the efforts we have to go to to get around that. You think about how much weight people lose, how much harder it is for them to fight infection, heal from operations, recover, get enough strength to get back out of bed one day. So when I think of my sick patients, if they can't get enough calories in, we're in a lot of trouble. Um, the, the focus of my work is pediatric neurosurgery. So we're dealing with some of the most vulnerable patients you can imagine. Um, you know, and, and when we have a, a baby, for example, who's been born uh, too early, you know, we have to calculate their nutritional needs you know, to the gram, to the milligram, um, across a range of nutritional um, requirements. Now, fortunately, that's that's not my job. Someone with a better calculator than me is doing that. Our, our nutritionists, but 
But we see the impact if that's not done well. We see the impact if people aren't brought to hospital when they need to be there. Um, and so to think of that kind of undernourishment, malnutrition happening at a com- community-wide level, at a societal level, with no end in sight, you know, no spring coming, no ship coming in, is super devastating. It, it actually makes me very emotional to think about my friends and my family, my patients, my colleagues, my community going hungry, getting thinner, losing their hair, losing their muscle tone, having their eyes sunken in. A reality which is already a reality for, for many people in the world, but to think of it happening on a global level, it's devastating and it's motivating. And I think there's parallels with the way that a lot of my patients think about their chronic disease. They imagine if they had a heart attack, they'd die right away. But that's not what happens to most people. Most people end up with disability and they stumble along and they die sometime later. And that's the picture we have to make sure people understand about global starvation from from, from the nuclear winter that would come in any of these scenarios, um, is that it's a slow and awful way to go. And we can't let that happen. All right. I do want to open it up to the audience. If anyone has any questions, either on Twitch or on Twitter, uh, you can get in here now and ask them. It's a great opportunity. We've got kind of an amazing panel of people all talking about this right now. And uh, if anyone's got any questions, please raise your raise your hand. Uh, while we wait on that, Dr. Allen, can you kind of give us the background on uh, – uh, I know that this – this idea of nuclear winter is based on decades of research. Can you kind of give us the origin story of, of when we figured out that it's going to inject a lot of soot in the atmosphere, these nuclear weapons? Sure. The Swedish journal Ambio in 1982 commissioned a special issue on what would the world be like after a nuclear war. And they invited Paul Crutzen and John Burks to write a paper on atmospheric chemistry what would happen in the air pollution all these all these chemicals would be breached and and uh they were experts on ozone and for ozone to form uh it's a common pollutant today uh you need sunlight and they pointed out that there would be lots of fires and the atmosphere would be full of smoke and it would get and they they called their paper twilight at noon and they said this would have a huge impact on agriculture. But they didn't even talk about how temperature would change because they didn't understand the processes by which the smoke would get lofted up into the upper atmosphere, into the stratosphere. So they uh, just uh, talked about and, – and black smoke absorbs sunlight, so they, they didn't comment on that. But another team, Turco Tune, Ackerman, Pollock, and Sagan – that's Carl Sagan – decided to calculate the climate response, and they found it would get very cold at the surface. They had a, a, a big meeting to review their results and, and told Russian scientists, and Alexandrov and Stenchikov went to use a different climate model to do the calculation, and they all found that it would get temperatures below freezing even in the summertime. And that's when I learned about it too, and I re- used a climate model to look at the long-term effects over several years. So that was f- 40 years ago, and it was very influential. Some Back then, uh, the climate models were very simple. So uh, about 16 years ago, Brian Toon and Rich Turco ran into me at a conference and said, we're thinking about what happened in India and Pakistan. We calculate how much smoke they would produce, and it's not as much as a war between the U.S. and Russia, and I said, oh, and they asked me to calculate the climate response, and that's why we started working on that problem. We we went back with our modern climate models to calculate, was it really nuclear winter? Because people said, your models are imperfect, uh, and we uh, found out that indeed, indeed, uh, in the middle of continents, temperatures would get below freezing. When I talk about a climate model, what do I mean? It's just a bunch of computer programs and that calculate how winds and temperature and, and clouds and and rain would change in the atmosphere. These computer programs we use every day to make weather forecasts. Uh, I'm a meteorologist. When I was younger, people said, you know, you guys are always wrong. You still get paid. Now they say, is it going to rain tomorrow? Because the models keep getting better. And we just run them for a much longer period of time to calculate climate. And we test them by 
looking at what happened in the past hundred years. We know what caused climate to change, and we've simulated it, and we were able to do it accurately. We there have been these large forest fires in Australia uh, that I'm sure Ruth knows about these terrible fires there, and they pumped smoke up into the stratosphere, and then it lasted for a year, blowing around the world. And before that, there were uh, a couple years there were similar fires in Canada. We used the same climate models to calculate what would happen to the smoke, and we were able to do it accurately. This gives us more faith in in the models that that our simulations of the future would be accurate. All right. I don't think we've got, unfortunately, any any questions coming in from the audience on on Twitch. People are telling me that they they don't have questions, but they think the discussion is very interesting, uh, and the implications of such an event is alarming. They say. Uh, so let me let me go. Let it, let's let's end this uh, with a question to Alicia. Um, people are reading the study; they're getting interested in this topic. I know we've already talked about nuclear divestment. What what other ways can people get involved? I mean, I think already, like the fact that people are reading and paying attention uh, and finding out about what are the real facts about nuclear weapons uh, is so important. Uh, given that, you know, I think they're often this abstract concept and we don't uh, fully appreciate and, and talk about nuclear weapons as they are, as, you know, weapons of of mass destruction, of mass murder. So I think already as a start, you know, starting with that framing, whenever you, you talk about nuclear weapons, talking about them as, uh, you know, as what they are, as, as weapons of, of mass destruction and, and sharing that information is really uh, you know, useful and, and powerful as a first step. Um, but of course, you know, I think uh, a key thing that you can do is get involved in in your community. Uh, and ICANN as an international network has local partner organizations uh, around the world in, in over 100 countries. Uh, so you can, you know, go on our website, ICANNW.org, uh, and we have country profiles and you can find your country and Find out if there is a local chapter you can get involved in, uh, and you know, and you can, or you can start your own if you don't see one. Um, and you know, beyond that, you can start getting involved in kind of these different campaigns that I talked about earlier. Whether it's uh, trying to get your parliamentarian, your elected representative, to uh, sign our pledge and call on your country to join the treaty, or getting a, a resolution through your local local governments, whether it's a city or a town council. Um, and yeah, I think there's, there's so many things that you can do, no matter what community you're connected with uh, or, or where you live. This is really an international campaign because of the international impacts of, of nuclear weapons. Um, so, you know, definitely check out our website, ICANW.org, for more information on all these resources that I've mentioned um, and yeah, stay involved. You know, I think it's, it can be disheartening to hear about all these really, you know, depressing facts about nuclear weapons and really the, what you can do about that, I think is get involved, um, and, and do something about it. You know, at least for me, I think that's, uh, that's how I can kind of deal with having to, you know, work on such depressing things all the time is, uh, feeling like you're having an impact and, and you're doing something about it. So I really encourage you to, yeah, to get involved in, you know, whatever, whatever way fits you best. I have a question here for Alan from the Twitch chat. It's from Emery Lee. Uh, the last administration raised discussions about low yield nuclear arms. Would those have the same climate effects? The, what causes climate change is smoke from fires. Uh, people ask me, well, we t used to test nuclear weapons in the atmosphere. How come there was no nuclear winter? And the reason is they were tested over the ocean or over the desert where there was nothing to burn. So the yield of a weapon will determine how big the initial blast is, but then the fire that starts can, can grow. You may have seen a, f a photo of this big cloud over Hiroshima. It wasn't the mushroom cloud. It was the cumulus cloud, the big thunderstorm that was generated three hours after the blast hit. And, and the amount of energy in that fire that pumped the smoke up into the atmosphere was orders of magnitude 10 or 100 times more than the blast itself. So it's the fire that and the smoke that causes the climate change. So it depends what the target is. And if it's a small 
the relative, I mean, any, even a small nuclear weapon is, is a thousand times more powerful than, than the biggest conventional weapon. And so these are, these are horrific things. But even if it's targeted on a missile silo out in the desert, uh, it won't cause climate change. But if it's targeted on uh, targets in cities where the military says we don't target civilians per se, but of course there's a lot of military targets in cities and so and, and, and industrial areas. So if it's targeted on areas that burn, that's the smoke that causes the climate change. Emery's response, just as I thought, same effects, we need to get rid of them, which I think yes. is uh, a good sentiment to have, yes. Um, all right, can we go to final thought? Oh, got another one. Uh, I'm joining late. Maybe this has been covered yet or is simply irrelevant, so please ignore if so. Nuclear power appears essential for a proper transition to an eco- eco-friendly energy. How does the need for nuclear energy affect the de-escalation of nuclear weaponry? Which I think is a pretty good question. Does somebody want to tackle that? Yeah. uh, In order to fuel a nuclear reactor, you need uranium uh, and you need to enrich it. Uh, After you burn it, you end up with plutonium, which can be taken out of the waste and used to make nuclear weapons. So nuclear power is a way to make nuclear weapons. And that's one of the greatest dangers of it. And the spread of nuclear power allowed countries to get nuclear weapons. When the arms race ended in the Soviet Union and we reduced our arsenal, the Nunn-Lugar Act in the United States paid Russian scientists and engineers to take apart the Russian nuclear uh, power plants and bring the fuel to the bring the weapons to the United States to be diluted and used as fuel for our nuclear power reactors. So I think. We can fuel. We can uh, power the world with the sun and with the wind. We don't need nuclear uh, power reactors, and probably we don't want to turn off all the ones that are existing now. But to expand and use more of them, it would be very expensive, much more expensive than solar panels and and windmills, and I more dangerous. Agree. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think that there are health impacts too nuclear power plants, which are underreported and underrecognized. I think that the nuclear fuel chain is uh, complicated and um, very difficult to pick apart, <clears throat> pick apart civilian from military applications. And I think that um, I take my advice from the Aboriginal people in, uh, you know, in Central Australia who I've tried to learn from, who simply say, uranium, leave it in the ground. I think that's uh, pretty good advice for everybody. Uh, thank you for your thank you for the great points and interesting discussion. Florian says who came in with that question. Uh, if there's no other questions from the audience, I'm going to move on to final thoughts from the guests. Uh, Doctor Ruth. Well, I think um, it's easy to get depressed when you think about dying and death. Um, I share bad news for a living. It's part of my job to tell people they have a brain tumor that's going to limit their life and um, tell people their kids are not going to do well, that kind of thing. But I think that there's also good news, and I want to maybe focus on some of that. I think this beautiful body of work um, that uh, Professor Robach and his colleagues have put together is a really uh, fantastic contribution to this space, and there's a lot to celebrate in this level of um, excellent helpful scholarship. So I'm, I'm really grateful and I'm encouraged by this contribution. And I also just want to make a shout out to Thessaloniki, which is the second largest country in Greece, which has just um, become uh, a member of the ICANN Cities Appeal. So shout out to Thessaloniki. You know, if you're listening and you don't know if the city you live in is a member of this movement, then that's your next job. You know, join the, go, join the Greeks in this work. So that's my my good news thing to finish on. Alicia, final thoughts? Well, I'd, I'd certainly second everything Dr. Mitchell Ruth has, has said. Um, and I guess, I, you know, I've already kind of made my, my pitch uh, for, for getting involved. And so I'll just conclude with um, one of my favorite slogans, uh, the anti-nuclear movement, uh, which is, I'd rather be active today than radioactive tomorrow. Um, so, you know, I think there's so many great ways to be inspired and active and, and uplifted despite 
you know, this, the depressing facts of nuclear weapons um, to get rid of them. So I uh, encourage you to, to join us. And I'd just like to uh, ag- agree with all the other speakers, and thank you so much for having me. Uh, you'll only be, by the way, you'll only be radioactive if a bomb hits you, uh, hits your city, but you might die. F- you have a much greater chance of, of starving to death from the climate effects around the world. And so that's what our study has added to this. And I'm really glad people are paying attention. And I hope uh, this can, uh, right now, the nonproliferation treaty is having a review conference at the United Nations. I was there on Wednesday last week to give a talk, and we're trying to let them know about this so that maybe they can enact Article 6, which promises to get rid of their nuclear weapons. And so any more pressure from people to their countries will be very useful. And let's let's solve this problem so we have the luxury of worrying about other things like global warming, which is gradual climate change, but this would produce instant climate change. So let's, it's really easy to solve the problem, just get, get rid of the nuclear weapons. Thank you to Alan, uh, Dr. Mitchell, and Alicia for coming on and walking me through this study today. It's in Nature Food. Uh, it has a very long title, which I will read to you now. Global Food Insecurity and Famine from Reduced Crop, Marine Fishery, and Livestock Production Due to Climate Disruption from Nuclear War Soot Injection. Uh, it will be linked in all the places when we start publishing this. If you missed the beginning of this conversation, we did record it, and it is going to go up on uh, Vice's Cyber Podcast stream, and you should also be able to watch it here shortly on Twitch at twitch.tv forward slash motherboard TV if you missed the beginning of the conversation and want to get caught up. Also, big thanks to IPPNW for hosting the Twitter space and reaching out to get me involved. Uh, I love doing this kind of thing. Thank you all so much. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Have a lovely week. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.